Hello everyone. So, so I am um, I'm an I'm an activist, and uh, among the things I've doing, I've been doing it for a little less than a year, is uh, helping refugees of conscience, which is a particular type of refugee, get from um, to, to the West, you know, anywhere from Morocco to Pakistan. And I get a lot of requests, and this work isn't easy because it takes months and sometimes even years for these people to have their asylum claims accepted. I have to liaise with lawyers, I have to phone call immigration officials, I have to help these people out when they get here to build new lives that are productive and safe and happy. So with this order, people that were in some cases just days or weeks or maybe even hours away from getting into the West, from having their asylum claims accepted, are now being told to wait 90 days or even indefinitely. What that means for some people, vulnerable people, people in countries where their very existence and identity is under threat, could be as little as arbitrary confinement, or it could be as much as torture, rape, and even murder. Now, I'm an unlikely speaker, I'm gonna be honest, I'm an unlikely speaker to talk here, because, not only because I'm an American, not only because I'm a former Muslim, but because I'm a conservative. But to me, conservatism doesn't mean targeting vulnerable people. Conservatism is not about picking on sexual minorities, racial minorities, political minorities, religious minorities. It's not about victimizing, ostracizing. It's not about doing that. To me, conservatism is about maintaining and conserving the traditions that made our country great. Now, compassionate conservatism oxymoron. Speaking of that, the first Americans were refugees. The pilgrims who came to our country, who we venerate every year on Thanksgiving, were refugees. They suffered the exact same kind of religious oppression in Europe that many now face in the Middle East. Their struggle is the same struggle faced by people such as Jews in Iraq, Sunnis in Iran, Shias in Yemen, Christians in Libya. It's the same struggle. That struggle matters. Their lives matter. To abandon this, to say that we don't care about that anymore when that is the cornerstone of our country, that is not conservatism. That is not American. That is heresy. I am not here to oppose this executive order because I hate America. I am here to oppose it because I love America and I love the traditions of freedom and providing refuge to oppressed peoples around the world that our country was built on. Feel free to boo. Hello, welcome to the Law of the Gosh podcast. The video you just saw is of my guest today, Will T.G. Miller, 
And Will is an activist for refugees of conscience and a conservative political commentator, a student at Cambridge University, and was previously a conservative Muslim. He is currently working on a book due for publication in 2019 on the phenomenological aspects of Islamic conversion. Hello, Will. Hello, Lalo. Great to be on. Yeah, thank you. So I just uh, saw your video at the protest that was about Trump's ban on seven Muslim states for 90, for at least 90 days. And we had spoken before that, luckily, um, through Facebook and got to know each other a little bit. And I was very impressed with the social and political dynamics going on in that video. So I thought it would be a good time to have Will on as a, as a guest so we can uh, talk about a little bit what's going on. Personally, I don't belong to a party of sorts. But it seems there's the, a lot of people on both sides are confused as to who is who is their friend, who is their enemy, who is their frenemies. And uh, yeah, before we get into that video and uh, Trump's ban on those countries, I want the public to kind of get to know you a little bit more. So you, could you tell us more about your background? Sure. Well, um, I'm not sure how much there is to say. I... Um... I came to the UK when I was uh, very young. I guess I was, um, I must have been nine, I was under 10 years old. And um, so I pretty much grew up here, even though I am American, I, I have this accent. And um, I've had a long journey since then to get to where I am now, you know, final year of uh, Cambridge and hopefully heading on towards a PhD. But um, it's, uh, it's very, it's something that I feel as well that in this current political climate, people like you and I, who want to speak on issues, not on ideologies, are sort of left homeless, if you will. And it's a phenomenon that I think um, I see getting worse, not better. Can you clarify a little bit about, because you, from what I understand, your background is not in any way really Muslim, right? As far as what I mean is like your parents aren't Muslim, right? And you weren't brought up in that tradition. No, absolutely not. No. So, I was born in New York City, and um, my although ethnically I would be mixed, I suppose, mostly of European heritage with a little Semitic um, Ashkenazi thrown around there. And um, when I came to the United Kingdom, um, although I, I don't want to get into this too much because it's a long, long story, and I'll keep your uh, guest here for hours, I fear, but um, there was... Um, a difficult period of my life um, that resulted in me uh, becoming a Muslim as a sort of solution, as a way out. And although I would say that I'm no longer um, a fully practicing conservative, you know, Sunni Muslim by uh, by the definitions of you know the Quran and the Hadith and whatever, I would say that now uh, I'm not also willing to fully disassociate myself from that. Do you mind if I ask what, what it was that kind of drove you to convert to Islam? Well, the area, so I, I, I live in London. Mm -hmm. And um, when we moved uh, into London, um, there were, we moved into a, a neighborhood that's 
very Muslim, um, especially compared to New York, which is like, you know, almost no, like the, the, the American population um, that Muslims comprise is 1% or something to that effect. Whereas in the United Kingdom, it, it's much higher and it's growing all the time. So um, we're talking about very different demography here. So it may be difficult for some of your American uh, listeners to comprehend, but there are areas of uh, London and of the, the UK in general, which are majority Muslim. I moved into one of those um, areas, and I would say that uh, to an extent it was a matter of um, survival in a very visceral sense, um, because, you know, unfortunately there are you know, tribal, I, I, street-level identity politics. I'm not just talking about, you know, kids bullying each other in school. I'm talking about, you know, um, gangs in the streets. I'm talking about getting mugged. I'm talking about all kinds of stuff. And um, getting away from that necessitates you having a group that will have your back. And for me, um, that group that I happened to identify with was the one that was there, which was you know, the Muslims. And so it sort of was an organic process, um, but also it was a, result, a direct result of moving to London in, in, the, in the way and the time that we did. What then led you to leave Islam? Well, as I said, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm fully comfortable with saying that I've, I've left now because I feel almost more and more drawn, uh, in, in, not necessarily perhaps to religion, but most certainly to, um, to the idea of God uh, recently. But I suppose that in, you know, in my late teens, I began to feel more and more like this was, like the people I was associating myself with were in fact they they hated everything that I that I was in a sense they hated what I was born into they hated the West they hated America they hated uh, you know my 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 family's traditions and the traditions that I had you know been born with and brought up with and abandoned and that was something I found very difficult to reconcile and on the other hand you have very liberal Muslims or reformist Muslims who say that you know they 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 have the label sure. But what do they really believe? It does, it, is it contingent with what's prescribed in the Quran? Does it make sense, you know, given what the Hadith says? And my answer in many of these cases was, well, no. So I wasn't able to accept the, their moral authority. But I also was sort of turned away by the conservatives, and it left me in a very strange position. And what is it that you do now when you refer to you're an activist for refugees of conscience, which you mentioned in the, the video we saw at the beginning? Sure. Well, so essentially um, what that means is that there are people all across the world, in fact, not just in the Muslim world, although that's mostly the, uh, the group of people that I focus my efforts on, that are, you know, because of their beliefs, and these can be political, religious, um, really anything, persecuted. In the case of uh, Russia, for example, this just means being an opposition activist. In the case of... Um, you know, somewhere like uh, Iraq, it can mean being an atheist from a Muslim or even a Christian background. So those people really need help. And the more important thing to note is that, you know, these are not my, 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 my moral defense for, um, for supporting refugees of conscience lies mostly in the fact that, you know, you know that these people are not going to become terrorists. You know <laughs> That these people are not going to um, go on and, and perpetuate the kind of the kind of things we have seen in the West, the kind of terroristic acts we've seen in France in recent years, in Belgium, Netherlands, Germany, England, everywhere. 
because they don't have those beliefs anymore. So I think it's very easy to justify. And what drove you to go and uh, protest at that the rally you were at there? So that rally in specific, well, that was essentially, I feel like the left, and I don't want to attack the political left too much because I, I like to keep a little nuance. But I feel like the modern, the contemporary left, or far left perhaps, I'm frankly, I'm not sure, um, has appropriated a number of causes and is, is sort of continuing to do so at an exponential rate. And uh, what they've done is they've said, you know, opposing Donald Trump, that's our ground. So if you want to oppose Donald Trump, you have to join us and you have to do that on our terms. And I, I wanted to say, well, well, no, I don't agree with that. I, I would like to oppose this executive order by Donald Trump, but I'm going to do that in my capacity as a conservative in a way that doesn't sort of contradict with my own beliefs. And I think that's a totally legitimate thing to do. And I think by doing so, I can actually perhaps bring us together. Because maybe if some of these guys see, oh, wow, there's not only Americans, there's not only, you know, inverted commas, white people, but there's also conservatives who disagree with this. So maybe they're not a monolith and maybe we can all stand together and, you know, fight this together. That was what I had hoped to achieve. However, when you got up to speak, I noticed, well, first you spoke some Arabic at the beginning and that got uh, you applause, which is fine. That, that's, a, that's a fine thing. But then you said you were a conservative and somebody yelled out compassionate conservatism is an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I really wonder if a lot of these people realize that Islam, just like evangelicalism or Catholicism or most forms of Christianity, when believed to, to a very high degree, is very conservative. <laughs> and uh, I, I wonder if uh, you going up there, when you say you were conservative, I think in their minds what they were thinking, just as I was thinking, that you meant you were a Western conservative, right? And had the person been like a Muslim woman in hijab who is mostly conservative, I don't think she would have been yelled at, booed. There was a woman at the end who yelled shame three times, a la <laughs> Go Game of Thrones. <laughs> And we can see this like in a, in other places, such as the Women's March, which was partially organized by a conservative Muslim, Linda Sarsour. And she gets praise from pretty much everyone, everyone from Obama to Bernie Sanders to Susan Sarandon and endless other celebrities. But if, it, if that same woman was Sarah Palin, Michelle Bachman, conservative women of Christian Western background, versus a Muslim background, I, I don't think they would get the the same applause. Do you think that that's kind of the social dynamic going on? You know what, I think, um, frankly, I think that's totally fair. The, just, to, just to note, the Arabic that I spoke at the start, that wasn't on my speech notes. I went up there, and frankly, I was, I was very scared. You know, Lalo, I, I'm not a public speaker. Mm -hmm. I don't normally uh, public. I, I don't do public speaking as a profession or as any part of my work. So um, I went up and just without even thinking, I just read um, the first two ayahs of Surah Al-Falaq, which is um, something that we we recite in order to keep the evil eye off of us. <laughs> so 
that might tell you a little bit about the way I felt at the time. There was a genuine um, fear in the back of my mind, you know, given the sort of slogans. I mean, these people were holding up signs that said stuff as, as, as inane as mashallah for Muslims, whatever that means. I, mean, I don't know what mashallah for Muslims is supposed to mean, but there were signs as innocuous as those, and then other people were holding up signs that said Allahu Akbar. And, you know, communists uh, destroy the West, and, you know, we're going to have a revolution, and all these sort of signs. It, it was a very um, tense atmosphere. So that was involuntary. And it, it, but it, you're right, it was funny that they cheered it. My opinion is that they identify Western conservatism with um, a hegemonic power and they identify Muslim conservatism or any non-Western, sort of non-traditionally white, whatever uh, form of conservatism as being, um, as being owned by a, a minority. And minorities are automatically oppressed in leftist ideology. Therefore, um, therefore, they're virtuous because oppression equals virtuosity. So it's the sort of support the underdog element of the left wing um, ideology. And as a consequence, you know, yeah, you can be a conservative Muslim and you can be saying, um, you know, really horrific stuff. And and that you'll be praised for that, just like Linda Sarsour was. But in my case. Um, were I to say any of those things, not that I believe them, but any of you know those things that Linda Sarsour has said about other women, about ex-Muslims, about about anyone, um, I think I would be vilified and crucified, and and rightly so. So that's a double standard, um, not just within the left, but actually within the West that we really have to work on. Well, based on on taking off from what you said, that there's a lot of weird social dynamics going on. So, for example, you were saying that they identify Muslims as kind of a minority and minorities should be protected. And therefore, it doesn't really matter how conservative they are, that they still integrate them as part of the left. Now, the Muslims they take in as part of the left actually have more values in common with the right conservative wing of the West. Right. Anti-Semitism sexism, more conservative attitudes as far as religion with, with sex, contraception, et cetera, et cetera, things like that. Uh, a lot of these people would have much more in common if they went down the list of social issues with someone like, you know, Michelle Bachman, maybe, right? But they're a conservative of a different brand. And I think to add to what you said, that their brand is seen as competition for the right wing in the United States, right? It's you might share our values, but ah, oh, this is Islam. This is not Christianity. Therefore, they also the the right wing. Not all, not all, but a lot of people do. Uh, in the West, as far as conservative, demonize Muslims. That does happen. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then the reaction to the uh, from the left, from liberals, is seeing someone who is a minority in the country as far as far as their population, someone who looks different and has kind of ethnic different traditions that just look strange to them being demonized by the conservatives in their country. And so the reaction is to adopt that person, embrace them and protect them. But again, they're embracing the people that they have very little in common with, but they have to justify it somehow. Right. So they like the Muslim conservatives who come to them saying, oh, no, no, the hijab is actually feminist. Islam is actually a feminist ideology. <laughs> actually, it's a religion of peace. They like these narratives being told. Now, if somebody came 
with these same narratives telling them, no, no, evangelical conservative Christianity is actually a feminist movement. It actually empowers women. <laughs> they wouldn't buy it. Right. They're like, no, no, no. I know about this. I know you're 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 selling me snake oil. But with mm. Islam, they don't know it because they're not familiar with it. So so they they, uh, they embrace these people. And I think there's a second phenomenon that happens that is where I have had experience with this with the people who I have befriended online, which is the ex-Muslim community, the refugee community who leaves Islam and leaves the Middle East, uh, ex-Muslims like Ayan Hirsi and endless other people who I've met, like uh, Yasmin Muhammad, who's become a, a part of the show, uh, Jennifer Sutton, who was a convert, also an ex-Mormon and ex-Muslim herself. And these people are very critical of Islam, right? They don't, they're not saying it's a religion of entirely peace. They're not saying it's a feminist ideology. It's not. But what happens is the people on the left, since they're embracing the conservative Muslims who are demonized by the right, they can't accept these other people who are ex-Muslims and reformers and liberals because they're criticizing Islam. And it sounds really similar to what the right is saying. They are the, basically the antagonist to the people they're embracing, the, you know, the Linda Sarsours and Hijab. But these people, the ex-Muslims, the people I just mentioned, have more liberal values then the then the people they're embracing the you know Dalia Mugahed Linda Sarsour conservative Muslims women in hijab these are these are people who are you know more more entrenched in the values of their of their religion so it's very totally strange right. what's what's going on that the liberal left is embracing conservative Muslims who don't share their values who have more in common with values with the conservative right and they're rejecting ex-Muslims, liberal Muslims, Muslim reformers who share their values. Maybe a, a last phenomenon I, I could mention, because this does, I see that it is happening, that since these ex-Muslims and the reformers and the liberals, Muslims, since they have no home because the, the left is not uh, absorbing them, they're not embracing them. Ayan Hirsi Ali gets uh, banned from speaking at universities. She was supposed to get uh, an honorary degree from Brandeis University. They turned her down. The Islamic uh, Student Associations protest her, turn away. And even though get backing from other secular atheist groups or feminist groups, uh, same thing was happening with, with people like uh, Miriam Namazi and, and others. And so a lot of these people, what do they do? Well, the only people who want to talk to us about our criticism of Islam are on the right. They get invi <laughs> invited on Fox News. And then that justifies the people on the left saying, ah, see, you're an uncle Muslim. Ah, see, you are conservative. You are on the right. Even though their values are not on the right, all they're doing is criticizing Islam. And they're criticizing Islam for being conservative, for being on the right, for not being liberal. That's what they're saying. But the left doesn't want to hear it. And you have this crazy social dynamic going on now. And it was very well reflected in that video I saw of you. Sorry for talking too much. Please, please t take over. No, 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 not at all. Um, well, what I would say is that that's a fantastic and completely accurate diagnosis of the situation. Except there's one element uh, you didn't touch on, you didn't go far enough on, and that's the fact that these leftists are now, because of this situation, these leftists are now not only embracing Islam as, you know, as this imagined progressive force, which they want it to be, even though it isn't. Because, you know, obviously for them, 
uh, minority and you know the subject of criticism or oppression must automatically be virtuous. So they want it to be this sort of virtuous, progressive feminist ideology, just like you say. So they don't just embrace it, they join it, right? So this is actually partially what my book is about. Um, it's about the way that people in the West uh, who identify more on the left, who are sort of the counter, the counter mainstream, uh, you know, anti-establishment um, groups, are disproportionately likely to convert to Islam, and not only to convert to Islam, but also to convert to radical Islam and you know become terrorists actually. And um, this is something that you see actually pretty much everywhere um, in the Western North Hemisphere right now. You're seeing it in the UK. You've seen it for decades. You know the the shoe bomber Richard Reed, for example. Um, you know who converted to Islam and then tried to blow up a plane was, was British, but he was born as a Christian, and he was I think he was a mixed race. He was half black, half white, and um, that was a big part in not only his decision to convert, but also in the fact that he chose to see the West as an enemy and take out the attack accordingly. And in North America also, you have groups like the Nation of Islam. You have um, other sort of new up-and-coming um, you know, black American converts and convert groups who are sort of joining Islam because they feel it's the only legitimate voice that opposes the government and sort of is, is in a in sense, antithetical to that um, the mainstream culture that they feel so alienated by. So in a sense, you're completely right, but actually it, the situation is much more extreme than that, or even, I dare say, much worse than that, because conversion, the, the reason Islamic conversion is such an accelerating phenomenon in the West, and the reason that paradoxically every terrorist attack only seems to increase conversion rates rather than decrease them, is directly related to this phenomenon. And, um, you know, I... It, it, if I am to be specific about the literature, it relates to something Emil Durkheim, who's a sociologist, identified um, in his 1907 book, Suicide, called Anomie. It's a difficult complex, a uh, difficult concept, I'm sorry. But these people sort of feel alienated, and then they turn to Islam, and then sort of, at that point, it's, it's, it's a new thing. It's, do I become this um, you know, extremist Muslim, or do I be a conservative Muslim, or do I sort of just do my own thing but call myself a Muslim? So you're seeing those sort of like those not really Muslims, do you know what I mean? The, the faux Muslims, the pseudo Muslims who will maybe wear a hijab, right? They'll wear a hijab, but they'll go out to nightclubs, they'll drink liquor, they'll behave just like they used to. For them, the only thing that matters is that difference in identity. So this is classic identity politics, and it's having a dramatic effect in changing our world. I think you made a great point that the... A lot of the people I was mentioning, the ex-Muslims, the liberal Muslims, the Muslim reformers, these are the people who are least likely to become a terrorist. You know, right. as an example, people should go listen to the podcast I did with a girl called Gada, who was recently appeared on a CNN special about women who have escaped from Saudi Arabia. They interviewed, I think, three girls. She was one of them. She was kind enough to be on my podcast. She's very brave. Admire the hell out of her. And... The podcast is basically her describing life in Saudi Arabia, the oppressiveness of it. We talk about the 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 abaya, the veiling that that she's forced to wear, the sexism that just doesn't come from um, the men, but as well as as the women, as she describes with uh, with her mother, the limitation on freedom, how she wanted to move to the West because she just wanted to be free to be her own person. Um, how this is a lot of this is rooted in Islam. This is the person who is least likely 
to be radicalized and go out and kill the infidel. You know, this, this is a person from the Middle East who's critical of a, of a conservative fundamentalist religion, such as Wahhabism. And the left doesn't care about her because she is saying that in her home country, there is oppression. There are problems. A lot of it is rooted in Islam and religion. And she's saying that the West is better for her, that she's more free there. They don't want to hear this because it reinforces a narrative of from the right. And they don't want to, they don't want to reinforce or prove the, the right wing conservatives in, their, in the West correct. Right. They, they don't want to say, oh, actually, you had a point there. It's always they have to prove their enemy wrong at the cost of people like Gada. Right. Because they, they're not. They, I mean, I'll talk. I'm talking with her. Why isn't she on Ellen? Right. Why isn't <laughs> she on, on every liberal news show? Why isn't she talking to Oprah? Why is Oprah talking to Reza Aslan and not ex-Muslim women who have escaped from Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Afghanistan? She's not. They like Malala, you know, a girl who who uh, was attacked by the fundamentalists, but a Muslim herself who said Islam is a religion of peace. Great girl. Very brave. And I'm glad she, she's very famous. She should be. At her age, fighting for education in, in her own country, getting shot for it. That's amazing. But what about these ex-Muslim women? They are ignored completely. And I just don't get it. Well, I get it, but it, it's just it, it, <laughs> it's just beyond me oh, how dear. they can do it. <laughs> yeah, it seems very immoral, doesn't it? But I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's about their narrative. I mean, they have this sort of holy, sacred narrative. And it's tied down to a deeper concepts. So earlier you mentioned how they sort of don't want to concede that maybe there's oppression in other countries that doesn't have anything to do with the West. You know, they don't really want to concede that. And the reason is because a lot of contemporary left wing ideology, especially quite like, you know, far, far left sort of communist um, identitarian, um, you know, BLM style stuff relies on, frankly, uh, infantile concepts uh, of sort of hierarchies of oppression and, you know, structures of oppression that, that are global as they see it. And one of those is, you know, white supremacy. So they'll say that, you know, white supremacy is global. It's everywhere. Um, literally everywhere in the world, non-white people are oppressed. And, you know, that is the primary network of, um, of oppression. That is, that is the primary agent of uh, the oppression of, you know, people of color, as they say, people, any, literally anyone who isn't white, who's, you know, most people. Um, that, that is what oppresses um, people of color around the world. However, you know, when you look at something like Islam, um, it's very easy to see that this has been, um, you know, a, a structure of oppression in its own right for 1400 years. And, and really not much has changed since then, just in the same way, however, as Christianity or Judaism have. It's not to say that Islam is the only structure that oppresses people. It's not the only religion that oppresses people. Of course, I would never insinuate that, and it's it's totally dishonest. Absolutely. But on the other hand, but on the other hand, it's sort of difficult to to deny its importance in in, in the twenty first century, especially given, and this sort of goes back into what you were saying. So I want to hear what you think about this. But especially given the fact that so many of these people attack and target and denigrate conservative Christians for their views on abortion. You know, I don't I don't know if you remember when um, the um, 
the the gay club shooting happened in Orlando, which was absolutely terrible. Omar Mateen, yeah. Yeah, Mateen, you know, the worst uh, mass shooting in the history of our country up to that point. And I hope that, you know, for anyone who's listening to this, that you don't know of a worse one that's happened uh, since I spoke and since we recorded this. But regardless, you know, on that date, I'm sure you remember the reaction from, you know, the, the mainstream uh, sort of left. It was, how dare these conservative Christians have justified this with their homophobia? How dare these conservative Christians have justified this with their opposition to gay marriage? Now, I support gay marriage, so clearly I have nothing to do with that equation. But on the other hand, I feel like I want to scream out for these people's dishonesty. You know, conservative Christianity had absolutely nothing to do with Omar Mateen, a man who didn't even subscribe to it, a man who rejected it. So that's the problem, really. It's total dishonesty. I, I don't think the I think the liberals in the United States are trying to save the, the minorities in their own country at the cost of people suffering abroad. They're trying to hide problems that reinforce a narrative from people who they see as the enemy, which is white conservatives. And they don't want to confirm as true anything they say. And in the meantime, people in the East, women, gays, my, religious minorities, ethnic minorities are suffering. But they don't see it. It's not their problem. Of course. And... Uh... Yeah, let's uh let's talk about the should we talk about the band now or should we Yeah, sure, sure, let's move to the band. All right. So, moving a little bit to what is known now as the Muslim ban, though it wasn't strictly a Muslim ban, it was a ban on Muslim majority countries. I want to preface before you jump in with some facts. That may take a few minutes, but I think it's worth it to give some context to the people listening. Um, I think it's good to go back to around 2015. There was a study that, that came out from an organization called New America Think Tank. And they had basically posted a statistic comparing white extremists with jihadists. Now, this isn't exactly right off the bat a good study because it's comparing white people with Muslims. And you can't really compare white people with Muslims since Muslims is not a skin color. There are plenty of white Muslims themselves. So there it's already a, a problem, but let's go with it. So you, the, on one uh, uh, article from that time came out, it says, Study says white extremists have killed more Americans in the U.S. than jihadists since 9-11. So notice there, right off the bat, it says since 9-11. It doesn't include 9-11. So this study was saying that you're, or at least reinforced the idea that you're more likely to be killed in the United States by a quote-unquote white extremist than a Muslim terrorist. And at that time, it said in 2015 that 48 people were killed by white terrorists, while just 26 were killed by radical Islamists since, since September 11th. Now, they're not including, for you know whatever reason they just decided to not include, the 2,900 people killed on 9-11, which changes the number drastically. And even then, we're comparing, in this case, Muslim terrorists with white extremists. However, Muslims only make up 
1% of the population in the United States. So 1% of the population has killed well over 3,000 people in the United States if you include 9-11. However, let's exclude those uh, numbers. Let's exclude the numbers of people dead on 9-11. Let's not think about that they're only 1% of the population. It was 48 people killed under white terrorists and 26 killed under Muslim terrorists in 2015. Currently, I checked the, the website today and in, in 2016, the number is now 50 people killed by white terrorists or right, right wing terrorism. And it's now 94 by Muslim terrorists. Still, that's not including 9-11. And I still see these articles posted today. I still see people commenting that today that you're more likely to be killed by a white extremist than a Muslim terrorist because there was all these flood of articles in 2015 and people have just run with it. It wasn't true in 2015. It's not true in 2016. Not even close. So there is a problem of Muslim terrorism in the United States. Some people will say, well, you're more likely to be killed in a car accident, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't reassure me in anything. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that this ceases to be a problem. It's a major problem. So take that into account, that it is a problem. But now let's go to Trump's ban on seven Muslim countries, which included Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Sudan, and Somalia. These are the countries he decided to put a ban on immigration, at least for 90 days on, possibly more. Okay. Why these countries? Because as I was saying before, a lot of people say, oh, yes, Lalo, you were right. See, the numbers showed that Muslim terrorism is a big problem. We have to do something about it. And maybe a stop on immigration is what we should be doing. But let's look at where the terrorism comes from. So a statistic from a study from a place called the Cato University, and this is done by Alex uh, Noraste, he posted a study for the Cato University for 2015. Now, this study shows the number of people killed from 1975 to 2015. Not doesn't include 2016 because we're just coming out of that year now. And this these numbers are exclusively for people who have been killed on American soil within American borders. The citizens from a country that have killed the most amount of Americans within American soil between 1975 to 2015 is number one, Saudi Arabia, with 78% of the total people killed within American borders. And then it's the United Arab Emirates at 10%, then Egypt at 5%, then Lebanon at 5%, and then the numbers go drastically down. So it's principal one is Saudi Arabia, then it's United Arab Emirates, then it's Egypt. And then it's Lebanon. But if we look at the countries that Trump put a ban on, again, those countries are Iran, Iraq, Syria, Libya, Yemen, Sudan, and Somalia. Uh, Iran, for example, 0% of people killed in terrorist acts within American soil. Iraq, 0%. Libya, 0%. Somalia, 0%, Sudan, 0%, Syria, 0%, Yemen, 0%. There was recently, uh, in the year of 2016, a stabbing in Minnesota by a Somali refugee. 
So that would add into the numbers. And I contacted Alex Noraste and he said that this statistic would be updated every year and there will be an updated statistics for 2016. And he even agreed to, uh, to come on my podcast eventually to talk more about this. So the countries that Trump has put a ban on are the countries that have not brought uh, Islamic terrorism to the United States. And so why, why were these countries left out? Well, Bloomberg put a map up in an article called Trump's immigration ban excludes countries with business ties. And it shows the countries where he has business ties versus the countries that he has banned. And these are not the, the, the same countries. So he has business ties with Turkey, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates. And again, it's Saudi Arabia, it's the United Arab Emirates, and it's Egypt that have the uh, have enacted the most terrorism. Citizens from those countries have enacted the most terrorism on the on U.S. soil. In more detail, the New York Times says these countries, unlike those subject to the ban, are ones where Donald Trump has done business. In Saudi Arabia, his most recent government financial disclosure revealed several limited liability Trump corporations. In Egypt, he had two companies registered. In the United Arab Emirates, he had licensed his name to a Dubai golf resort and a luxury residential development and spa. Some of these uh, entities have since been closed and others remain active. So this is why I think even if you were going to try to make an argument for the ban on these specific Muslim countries, the logic is, is that this will somehow bring down terrorism and people who are against Western values and keep out the fundamentalists when there is no evidence that these are the specific countries that are committing the most terrorism. It's completely other ones. And just by coincidence, Donald Trump has had business with them. So what do you think uh, about about all this? Well, I, th I think that's, um, that's a fascinating insight. Um, just before I start, um, just want to mention... Um, one thing that you said, because you pointed out how people are now saying that there's such a thing as a white extremist or a white terrorist. And um, there is, but not in the way they're insinuating it. So what they do is they say, okay, well, you're talking about Muslim terrorism, but what about white terrorism? And the truth is that, that this is comparing apples and oranges because these are just completely different categories, right? So you can be white and a Muslim and a terrorist. The Tsarnaev brothers, who were Chechens, who committed the, the Boston bombings, the Boston Marathon bombings, I, I think it was 2015, they were white, and they were Muslim, and they were terrorists. But you cannot simply be a white terrorist or a white extremist, because to do so would imply that being white is in itself an ideology, and it isn't. So, you know, being white doesn't confer beliefs and, you know, and a, and a rationale and a utopia and any of the other elements that, that an ideology has upon a person. And neither does being black, neither, neither does being Asian. You cannot be an Asian terrorist. You can be a, a Muslim terrorist who is Asian, or you could be a Christian terrorist who is Asian. You could be a communist terrorist who is black, or you could be a far-right terrorist that is black. But you cannot be a black extremist, because that means that to be extremely black makes you blow things up. So that's one of the left's biggest um, sort of non sequiturs and just, and just mendacious lies. You could say the person 
was a white supremacist terrorist or they might be sure. a black supremacist terrorist or they could be an sure. Arab supremacist terrorist, which there are black supremacists. There are white supremacists. Right. There are right. Arab supremacists and there are all kinds of supremacists. But that right. is a specific kind of ideology in itself that's in regard to race. And exactly. some of the some of the terrorists in the United States have been white supremacist terrorists. And a lot of the Muslim terrorists are actually uh, Arab supremacists or supremacists of another kind or Muslim supremacists in, in a different way. But this is still a, an ideology. It's not specific to their skin color. It's that their ideology involves their skin color. Right. Which is a very different thing. So if you're going to exactly. if you're going to compare just white terrorism in the United States, uh, categorizing them by their skin color, the contrast to that should be a list where it says white terrorists, black terrorists, brown terrorists, etc. Right. It shouldn't if you're going to say Muslim terrorists. Well, then after that, it should say Buddhist terrorist, Christian terrorist, Scientologist terrorist like that. It, you can't mix these things. They do, it makes no sense. But Precisely. I, but it says something very poignant about the mentality of the left and how they see Muslims. They see well, the they've contrast. Racialized they've racialized them. They see the contrast to white people is to Muslims. Right. Now, I know uh, that a lot of people in the U.S. wouldn't like that simply all white people are blanketly called Christian because they're not all Christian. They wouldn't mm -hmm. like the, the Christian identity in the U.S. to be racialized. Oh, you just mm -hmm. I, all of you are Christian. Nah, that comes off the wrong way. It's actually kind of bigoted. You're generalizing uh, all of uh, a whole race in a whole country, and it isn't that way. Well, guess what? It isn't that way in the Middle East either. Don't mm -hmm. just blanketly categorize everyone from the Middle East as just Muslim. There are plenty of, of people in the Middle East or um, uh, Northern Africa or Southeast Asia who are not Muslim. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of Precisely. Arabs who are not Muslim, myself included. My last name is Dagash. It is Palestinian. My, I'm an atheist. My father's an atheist and his father was an atheist. Well, there you go. I mean, that's it, isn't it? I mean, um, just before I get back onto the uh, issue of ban, the ban, which I do want to talk about, I mean, the reason, in my estimation, that the left thinks like this is because to them, religion is just an identity category. So, I mean, I actually wrote an article on this and your friend, uh, your, your good friend, Sam Harris, he's also criticized it. You know, when people say that Islam has nothing to do with terrorism, that's where it comes from, because they actually believe that it doesn't. They believe that there's no possible way that a religion could motivate people to do anything, even though a religion is by definition a system of commandments. Right. And those commandments could be good commandments or they could be bad commandments you know like where um in the quran in surah 34 of um sorry in ayah 34 of surah 4 you know you know beat your wife um or you know you know men are men have rights over women so stuff like this they simply don't understand it and that's where i see a sort of intellectual um frankly inferiority um in much of the the the, the contemporary left as for the ban now I have a lot of problems with the ban. Um, my biggest problem was refugees and green card holders. Now, I think that regardless of your religion and regardless of your country of origin, if you have obtained a green card into the United States, if you've been through that vetting process and you've obtained a green card, and we turn you away because we say, oh, sorry, you're from, you're from Iraq. Oh, sorry, you're from Iran. You know, that is, that's not right. That's not the America I, I love and that's not the America I believe in. And furthermore, um, I also think that 
although it is wrong to call it a Muslim ban, because it frankly isn't. You know, there are Zoroastrians in Iran who now wouldn't be able to get into America. There are Christians in Syria who now wouldn't be able to get into America. You know, Jews in Iraq who wouldn't be able to, you, you see the point. So it was more by nationality. Mm. And are those nationalities even picked well? So you just gave those statistics about, um, you know, Donald Trump's uh, sort of business ventures and, you know, sort of questioning, okay, so perhaps there's a connection there. And I, I frankly, I don't know about that. I'm, on, I'm uneducated on the matter. I think Donald Trump is, you know, a, a horrible, nasty man by all accounts. And uh, people calling him a narcissist, I really wouldn't debate that point. I think it may well be correct. I'm not sure about to what extent the bill is connected to, uh, rather the executive order is connected to his business interests. Although as I understand it, uh, the list itself was drawn up by President Obama, uh, or at least during the time of the Obama administration, which is before Trump had a, a chance to get anywhere near it. So I don't know about the list. Um, but I, but I oppose this executive order. I do, however, support decreased immigration levels from the Middle East. That is something I support. That is something I'm very open about. I do think that Western countries have to lower their the amount of immigration they allow every year. And not just, I think, especially from the Middle East, but also from other areas, also from, um, you know, Africa, South Asia, South, South, Southeast Asia, in general areas which are not socioeconomically developed, I think we should lower our immigration intake from those areas. And I'm very consistent about that. Um, so I do support decreased immigration limits, but this ban to me is is frankly anti-American. It's anti-everything I believe in. And I don't see that there's anything to be gained by its implementation. Yeah, I I agree. I don't, I don't, I don't see any real reason. For example, a country like Iran there's there there's never really been as far as i know in the us uh, in general terrorism done by iranians or it's also you don't tend to find uh, most terrorists are not Shi uh, shiite as well right right exactly the overwhelming majority of terrorism is done by sunnis salafis sunnis especially but sunnis in general and it's very rarely done by shiite and that iranian is shiite now the government has no love for the us and there's a lot of antagonism, maybe even in the society, but it's very rare that it goes into uh, the extreme of terrorism. So why put them on the list? Whether it's Obama that uh, that drew up the list or not, uh, I, I'm not a particular fan of Obama, so it makes no difference to me w w whether it was him or not. Uh, I think it's still a bad choice. Um, I agree. And also, just to add, um, so you just... One other thing I think that the current government is not considering is the fact that it is in many ways even a security risk for us to stop um, taking people from places like Iran, where you mentioned there's no, um, you know, no real risk uh, of, of terrorism, especially when compared to Sunni Arab um, states. And you know, the reason for that is, frankly, we need people. We need people in this country, in, 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 in the UK, in the USA. We need people who are familiar with Persian culture, who speak the Persian language, who can, you know, who can work with us for our government, not just as, as spies, you know, in, in um, Iran, Afghanistan and Tajikistan, which is the three languages where the Persian language is spoken, the three countries where the Persian language is spoken, I'm sorry. But in general, you know, as cultural analysts, political analysts, to help achieve our governmental objectives, that is something that is harder to do if, you know, when people say, OK, what are the Iranians thinking? We have no one around to tell us. Right. So that is another I mean, obviously, 
that's an, an extreme uh, point to take. It's obviously not the case that America is now going to have zero Iranians. We're not kicking out all the Iranians. But my point is that there is some truth to the, you know, strength and diversity um, slogan. I think there is some truth to that. I think this is an example of it. And I think that if we were to lose all our Iranians, if we were to make an environment that would be so hostile for them that they would all, you know, leave, you know, Muslim or you know, Shia or Zoroastrian or whatever, I think that would be pretty bad for our country. And I don't want that to happen. And also, it may be true that Obama drew up that list. I don't know if he would have executed it the same way, especially with Iran on the list. For example, Obama tried so hard to establish the Iranian nuclear weapons deal. Right. Right. Where they were where they were gonna have more control, the IAEA in checking that Iran was not developing nuclear weapons grade material. Right. And now Trump, who said outright in the debates that he's not a fan of the deal and he he's he's looking to destroy the deal. And by putting Iran on that list, which I don't know if if uh Obama would have executed that list as such, considering it hurts the relations that have just recently got better, that helped with the to establish that deal with Iran. And now Iran responded uh, to this ban by saying, oh, we're going to ban American citizens, too. Now, a lot of people think, well, oh, it's not like I'm 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 uh, desperate to go to on vacation to Tehran. OK, maybe not. But there are some Iranian Americans who maybe want to go to see their family or vice versa and the relationship there is now strained it's now hurt and it's no there, there's no guarantee of as to what's going to happen with the iran nuke deal and whether they might just throw it out and then we're going to have a, a nuclear weapons in in iran which will lead nuclear to nightmare. a nuclear nightmare that would lead to maybe saudi arabia which is basically ideological enemies with iran because they're sunni and iran is, is shia and they're going to say, well, if they have nuclear weapons, we want nu nuclear weapons. Similar case to what happened with Pakistan and India. Right. So that's one uh, reason that th that the, the, the ban was just a, a very bad idea. Another thing is that in the in the video of the protest you did, you were mentioning how a lot of these people can't wait 90 days. That 90 days might sound like a short period of time. But for a lot of these people, it's life and death. Uh, there's there's laws in a lot of these countries against being homosexual. They are persecuted for being apostates. In Saudi Arabia, just being an atheist declared by the government is an act of terrorism. Just being an atheist is an act of terrorism. There are women who have been arrested and charged with atheism for driving. For driving. And these people a lot of times try to be asylum seekers and come to the U.S., or other places in the West. And these are people that you should embrace. And they should not be hung out to dry. And sometimes those these people don't have 90 days. Sometimes they don't have three days. Mm -hmm. Gay people trying to escape from Iran, from Iraq, from Syria. A lot of these places are controlled by ISIS. Mm -hmm. All these things happen. And people say, well, hmm, why would we want these people here? Mm. Well, okay, you can take that attitude, but it, it, I, I, I see it as, a, as an extreme lack of empathy, and I know a lot of people will disagree with me on that. No, I think that's a good point. And I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what all of this is an example of, in my opinion, is the degree to which 
U.S. policy, I mean, U.S. foreign policy and, and even domestic policy or immigration policy just seems confused right now. It seems like we're, we're this sort of, we're this juggernaut, we're this leviathan that totally, you know, is seemingly directionless. And every four years, we're sort of jolt from side to side, and you're not sure which way it's going to jolt. And I don't see the same kind of grand strategy or the same kind of, you know, overarching uh, the goals of progression and you know, looking into the future, trying to, you know, get a man on the moon or whatever, those things that we had during the time of the Cold War. And so really, to me, this is more, you know, Donald Trump himself is to me a symptom of American decline. Like during the Cold War, you know, we knew what we were, we knew what we were after, we knew what we wanted, we knew how to achieve it. We had these distinct and concrete goals. And now it's sort of like, oh, well, do we want a, you know, a super, a super far left liberal Jill Stein or, you know, or perhaps Bernie Sanders is a, is a better example. You know, do we want this socialist who doesn't understand basic economics or do we want, um, you know, Donald Trump, who doesn't understand the basic right of women not to be sexually assaulted? You know, like, oh, which, which, which do we prefer, guys? And they're total opposites. So that's a dysfunctional democracy, if anything. And I think America's political culture and our political polarization is at such a state right now where we really just have to stop and ask ourselves, you know, what are we trying to do here? Who are we? What do we want? What should our country look like? And we've got to try and reconcile those views. And that's why I spoke. Because I wanted to let these people know, you know, these, these far-left nutters who were holding signs saying, Allahu Akbar, despite that being, you know, what, 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 what would be yelled were they to simply set foot in a country like Saudi Arabia before they were beheaded. What I was trying to do was to say to these guys, listen, I disagree with you and everything you believe in. But this right here, this is wrong. This ban is wrong. I'm going to stand with you. We're going to be friends and we're going to overcome our political antagonism and we're going to oppose it together. And we're going to, we're going to achieve something by doing that. And that's what I tried to do. I extended the hand, I extended the olive branch, the hand of friendship, and they spat on it and turned it away. And they screamed, shame. And now, frankly, Lalo, I don't, I don't know what to do. I, I, I think that's very, very sad. I would say I don't consider myself part of any political party. I don't like politicians as, just as a base, much less heroizing them and idolizing them. Mm. And these people seem to be the most intolerant now on the left and the people who claim to be liberals, the people who claim to be on the left are completely intolerant of anyone who thinks differently than they do. And these are the people who scream every day about tolerance. I myself, for Donald Trump's inauguration, I had um, Khalid Barrui. Uh, oh, yeah. Khalid Barrui. Um, yeah, and he was, he was a great guest. I had him on because he was from Morocco, he was an ex-Muslim, and he was very pro-Trump. And I had it especially on for the inauguration of Donald Trump. And I did it as of kind of also extending the hand, having a dialogue, hearing the other side. I still don't like Trump, <laughs> right? And I like him every day, just less. But I'm willing <laughs> to hear out somebody and their reasons. A lot of the reasons he gave weren't terrible. I even added a couple reasons myself why he's superior to a lot of these people. 
mm. right? I try to to really really see the other side's point of view, and even find some validity. Not enough for me to get my support, but enough to 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 see why people think the way they do. And you there, on that stage where you spoke to this group of people, there was no reason that they acted the way they did to scream shame at you, to boo you. All you said at some point that is that you were conservative. But right. everything else you said, they should have perfectly been in line with, right? Or at the very least, okay, we might have some ideological differences. But the reason they were there for that, for that protest, you were on their side. Mm -hmm. But no, oh, sorry, you, you said you said that you're on, a, on the different side than us. You're on the different team. You might agree with us on, in this march. But you you belong to the other team, therefore screw you. The left can no longer say that they are the tolerant ones at all, and it's not just that video of you doing this. I it's, it, I see this all the time now. Everyone does. And I I, I also know. want I also want to ask you, in what sense uh, do you consider yourself conservative? I want to find some points of dis disagreement between the two of us. Well, actually, um, so generally what happens, what happens with my political views and, and what I think will happen to us now is that because I'm generally very agreeable and I'm very tolerant of other views, I, I consider myself a nice guy, although perhaps that word has negative connotations now, so I don't know if I want to apply it. But, um, but I do have some quite strong, uh, strongly conservative uh, views that are influenced by my religious background. Um, extensively in influenced by my Muslim background um, that I maintain today. And just before I explain what those are, um, I'll give you an example. Like I was um, in, in Cambridge um, you know, with, with a, just a, a grad student came up to me and she, she, she just said hi and we started talking. And uh, this was in the cafe of my, of my college. And um, we ended up talking for three hours and I was just asking her about our views. She was telling me about all this stuff. She was like, oh, well, that's fascinating. I told her, you know, about the refugee activism stuff I do. And, um, and, she, and she went away and, you know, added me on Facebook. She was like, oh, you know, Will TG, like, listen, I, I want to get, get your Facebook. Let's get to know each other. And then the next day I posted something on Facebook, you know, like the, just, you know, my opinion on something and instantly blocked me, instantly unmatched me. So I have a feeling that perhaps that's going to be replayed now with you and you might hang up, you know, halfway through when I say something that sort of scares you. But um, allow me to explain. So I am a conservative. Um, that is with Blocked. regards Blocked. To... Hanging up. Podcast <laughs> over. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's very good. That's very good. Um, no, I am a conservative. Uh, one of the issues on which I'm a conservative is economic um, economically, I do not believe um, that equality of outcome or really anything nearing equality of outcome is even mildly possible. So I think um, I'll give you an example. You know, you have a guy who is a um, let's say he's born and he's severely autistic and he can't do anything except paint. But when he paints, he's a beautiful painter. He's the most beautiful painter you've ever seen. He makes these incredible paintings and everyone wants to pay him 500 grand for them. Now, I wouldn't necessarily support a taxation system that would say, okay, you know, we're going to give you a 95% a tax or a 90% tax or whatever and redistribute that money to people who are doing nothing. Because what this is, is it's, it's a person's God-given talents, right? It's a person's God-given gifts 
and he's using those and they happen to be better than other people's, you know, God given gifts or lack thereof. And he's, and he's, and he's making money from that. And I think that's okay. So I believe in inequality as, as a principle of, of, of human nature. I believe that inequality is inbuilt into us. Perhaps it's designed into us if I'm going to take a full, you know, religious perspective, a full, you know, Quranic uh, perspective. But so I believe in inequality. Um, I believe I don't believe in socialism. I don't believe in communism because I think they're morally wrong because I think they contradict human nature and th that fundamental principle that, you know, that we are different, that every person is different and that every person has a different capability and different, you know, different things they can do. What about so, uh, socialist institutions such as public schools, libraries, that, that the military is, is basically run by the government, uh, et cetera, that there are some institutions that are socialized that are basically run by the government and funded with tax dollars? Sure. I think those are justifiable based on principles like the harm principle, like as in, okay, so what's the greater, you have to do it in a sort of utilitarian way. You have to say, what, what harm is greater? Is, is the harm to us of having a completely, you know, psychotically unequal society more harmful to every individual in that society collectively than it would be to sort of disrupt, you know, the natural rights of people to earn what they're able to to earn from what they're able to create. And I think uh, sometimes in some cases that is justifiable. So I do believe in public schools. I do believe in, um, you know, publicly funded or uh, supported healthcare. I do believe in a publicly funded military. But I believe that on the other hand, taxation and, you know, what governments spend their money on is so incredibly inefficient and just so bad and so corrupt that um, even I have some doubts with regards to that. And then another area I guess I'm conservative is uh, with regards to, um, you know, male and female sexual relations. Like, I don't know if you know Islam uh, so much, but in Islam, if you have sex outside of marriage, that's called zina. And zina is very, very bad. If you do zina, you get, uh, you get, qatl, you get killed. So we, we don't like that. And I also think that, um, that actually in many ways, a society where people are not sleeping around so much and where, you know, you have uh, male, female gender roles and you have marriage that sort of sort of synthesizes those roles into a beautiful whole. I think that's that's a good thing. Um, but on the other hand, I don't want to stop gay people from getting married because um, that that in my, my in my view makes me an asshole. Right. Well, I'm really against you on uh, on the <laughs> sex thing because I am. 35 years old and I'm not married. So I'd, I'd oh, hate to be no. a virgin at this point in my life <laughs> under your, your philosophy. So I'm against you on that one. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't want to push back or get into a conversation on any of these topics specifically because, you know, what we could talk for 10 hours on, on any of, of these topics individually, as far as socialism, uh, abortion and all that. And um, however, I would like to, to touch on the one where, uh, you said you're you're conservative because you believe in the values of the West when you spoke uh, and on the platform. And in that sense, I I do tend to agree. I do tend to what you could call a conservative attitude towards not necessarily values, although many values I would I would include in there. But I would say maybe I'm a constitutional conservative. Mm -hmm. And this comes from living in South America, where people like Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, as soon as he took power, took the Constitution, tore it up and made a new one. 
And then in a few months later, he made a new one. And he, in a year, he made 15 new constitutions. Like, it's nothing. And I don't think that's a good thing. You have to start from the fact you have a good constitution. I think for the most part, for the overwhelming majority of the constitution in the U.S., for example, I think they have a good constitution. Mm-hmm. With some disagreements that people can have on on uh, amendments for guns and things like that. But for the most part, it's a very solid, good constitution. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's a good thing that people can change it easily. Oh, I yeah. think it should be conserved as is. And any amendments changed or added to the constitution should be done under extreme circumstances with the highest level of democratic votes right as as it is it, it you need a super majority in in the in the congress to change an amendment or to add an amendment and although i even see some parallels between the attitude and the kind of a little bit tar- uh, the totalitarianism and want for power between donald trump and hugo chavez it it leaves me some comfort to know that the united states has more checks and balances Mm-hmm. Then Venezuela, where a pr- new president can't come uh, in and just change the the constitution like it's nothing. I mm. I really think that in the case of the United States, Donald Trump, as much power as he wants, as as much as he wants to just do what he ever wants to do, I don't. He doesn't have the power to just come in and tear up the constitution. He might even do some things that are unconstitutional, but at, mm. at the very least, they can challenge him on it, and he can't just put in and take out of amendments. It's very hard to do that in the United States. And I think that's a good thing. In that sense, I would say I'm conservative in that way, right? Yeah. In that I'm not a progressive that I think, oh, just change all the time. Hey, let's just, let's change <laughs> amendments all every month. You know, like it's nothing. No, that's not a good thing because, yeah. and, and it's because of this. And I think, I think the, the people who are known as the founding fathers in the United States knew there were always going to be people like Donald Trump or Hugo Chavez, there's mm-hmm. always going to be people who want all the power, who are going to change the things to, to the way they want, whether you like it or not. And that the documents should have power over the people, not people over the documents. You have to live by certain principles. Those principles might not always be perfect. They do have to change, but it sh- again, it should be tough to change them. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And um, that would also be agreed upon by, you know, in fact, uh, me, me speaking at that protest, that actually wasn't even um, my idea in the first place. Like I told you, I, I'm a terrible public speaker. So and the idea was, um, was originally put forward by, by a very close friend of mine who um, I won't name, but, and he's actually Jewish. And uh, we, we talk about, uh, about religion and, you know, the, the Muslim and the Jew, it's the classic sort of the classic dialogue. And we talk about religion quite a lot. We also talk about, you know, political ideologies and our identities and we're both very conservative and i think um he the way he would probably put it is he would say that you know conservatism isn't about um it isn't about worshiping the ashes right it isn't about worshiping what used to be and is now gone it's about keeping the fire alive right mm-hmm. it's it's about maintaining what we have and conserving it and that does mean maintaining our our, our constitution and that does mean maintaining the political traditions that made the country, you know, free and happy and, and livable and everything else in the first place. And uh, so I definitely think that we'd find a lot of agreement there, the two of us, you and I. Would you do it again? These uh, a protest like that with people uh, on the left, would you go there knowing, hey, I might not share a lot of values these people have. They're more on the left. I'm more conservative. 
but hey, I believe in the cause they're doing right now and I'll go talk and be open about being conservative. Do you think you'd do that again? Well, frankly speaking, it was a pretty um it was a pretty scary experience like I said, you know. Yeah. I even, you know, surat al-falaq at the start, right, which wasn't on the speech that I wrote at all. So it was nervous and it was nerve-wracking and that's actually why my friend um <laughs> backed out because you know he even said he was like hey i'm jewish i don't want to be around here these guys are holding signs that say allahu akbar and mashallah for for muslims i'm not sure i i know what they want to do with me so so it ended up just being me and uh, so it was quite scary but you know i think it was worth it because at the end of the day if i showed just one guy there you know one guy that would maybe have um have called everyone voting for Brexit or everyone who voted for Trump fascist scum or racist, you know, white males or whatever it is, whatever word they're using these days. If I show just one of those guys, hey, you know what? There's another side to this and we can we can stand with each other and we can, we can be friends and we can talk and we can agree and we can we can both try in our own ways to do the right thing. Did you feel like when you were in the crowd at all uh, any danger that they would be violent after you, your talk? Any danger that they would be violent? I mean, perhaps you 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 can never you can never really tell with these kinds of people in these kinds of crowds because there are violent people in the crowd. You know, there's the whole veiled, um, you know, face concealed anarchist people. There's there's others. You know, just after me, someone else went on and said, you know, America is disgusting. How dare Americans have voted in Donald Trump? They're sick people. They voted for a sick man. You know, basically, and all of this stuff. And we know what that can result in because we know, you know, at BLM protests, how random white people get attacked because the, the people who are doing the attacking genuinely believe, you know, you are, you, you represent this government or you represent this, um, this ideology this, of white supremacy or, or whatever it happens to be that, that is uh, making my life bad. So I'm going to hurt you and by doing so attack that ideology, that system. So I know that there are people who thought that way, but um, I, I slipped away very quickly. So <laughs> I was uh, I was all right. But I did I did kind of think, OK, now I'm getting the hell out of here because, you know, the people yelling shame and everything. Oh, man, there was nothing you said there that you uh, you should be ashamed for, I believe. Thank you. That's very sweet. Um, I think you I think you said a very good thing. I think you on that stage, you should have been the person that those people embrace the most reaching across the table to people who disagree with them, right? People who possibly voted Trump. They should have said, okay, this is the people we need to convince. If not, they're just preaching to the choir. And instead of doing that, they attack a person who's trying to support them just for playing for the other team. Mm -hmm. So what is the point there that they're doing? Are they trying to convince or reach across the table or convince anyone? Doesn't seem so. And also, I wonder about the fact that they're holding signs that say Allahu Akbar <laughs> and similar, the recent women's march that was basically yeah. really a, a, a march against Trump. They literally uninvited a, a feminist group that was pro-life. Mm. So it wasn't really a women's march. Mm. And at that march, they were passing out hijabs. To, for people to wear, for non-Muslims to wear. And I saw men putting them on, women putting them on who are not Muslim. And I understand the intent of what they're trying to do. They're trying to sympathize with a marginalized group in the United States that is a tiny minority, which are Muslim people. However, most Muslims in the United States 
women don't wear the hijab. <laughs> Most of them don't. So it's not really a symbol for women, Muslim women in the United States even. It's Perfection. actually, it's a symbol of conservatism or orthodoxy within for, for Muslims. And I also wonder when they do this kind of stuff, I doubt firmly that they have any concept of the pains and oppression and violence and struggle that people who have tried to leave the religion or would even like to leave the religion, but really can't. And they're stuck in their families or their societies out of social pressure and family pressure to leave the religion. And they see white people saying, mashallah, you know, <laughs> Allahu Akbar, or they're passing out hijabs. Hij yeah. And and how they don't take a second to think, what about that girl who was forced to veil throughout her whole life and worked so hard and struggled so much to take it off? How do you think they feel? I don't think they, they stop for a second to think what they're doing and how and how that woman is feeling. Of course and they I, don't, because they don't I, care. I think the these people, um, there's a quote from Sarah Hader from Ex-Muslims of North America, and she said, I get a sense of condescension, a sense that there are those who believe that the most essential trait of brown people is their religion, a defining feature. <laughs> and I agree with her. I think these people see people from the Middle East as they are Islam. They are Muslim. And you even see it with these people coming from the countries that were on Trump's list. They mm -hmm. think, oh, these are Muslim people that are banned and we should support the Muslims. But like you said, they're not all Muslims. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people come to the United States to get away from the religion specifically. Precisely. If not, that's, that's the usual case right <laughs> that they're yeah. escaping the oppression of islamism of course of sharia law like the people i've i've spoken to and i know it's not everyone i know a lot of people like you know living that way or you know will defend islam i know i, I am well aware of those people are out there but shouldn't these liberals stand with the liberals from abroad they, they're all about oppression right the left now is you know oppression olympics right it's a, who's yeah. oppressed the most, who, who's the marginalized the most, who's disfranchised the most. And in the United States, okay, you know, it's, it's uh, black people, it's trans people, it's brown people, it's gay people, it's this and that. And they, they, they look and look and try hard to find uh, the oppressed groups and stand by them no matter what. But not in the case of people from other countries. In that case, they stand with the majority, the oppressive majority, and they abandon the minorities. Because when they stand with the with Muslims who wear hijab and are the most fundamentalists, they're actually standing with the majority, the oppressive majority, and they're abandoning minorities. But to them, the fundamentalist Muslim, the orthodox Muslim, the conservative Muslim, they are the minority in their eyes, in their country. And they translate that over abroad. They say, oh, well, the conservative Muslim is a minority and is persecuted in my country. Therefore, they see the entire Middle East as one gigantic oppressed minority in their eyes. Mm -hmm. It's a very simplistic way of looking at the world. And I don't know what to do about that. Like, do, do you agree with this or do you? Well, I do agree. And what I'm sort of getting at um, for my book is that the, 
I think that this will self-destruct. I think it will self-destruct, or at least it has the potential to do so. And it has the potential to do so in a number of ways. And one of those ways is the fact that these, these liberals or these leftists or whatever you want to call them, they don't realize that they are actually pissing off conservative Muslims. And even sort of, you know, because I still have a bit of residue from that, it still it pisses me off. I, I don't know if you saw this video of them. Um, there, there, there was, there's a march in Germany somewhere in the last week. And there was a, there was a bunch of women who congregated and they did, um, you know, one of them did the Aden, which is the call to prayer. And one of, yeah, one of them did the call to prayer and started yelling Allahu Akbar. Exactly. So one, mm. this, this woman with a hijab did the, the Aden and then all around her, all these other women start saying Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. And I'm just standing there thinking, you fucking like, women aren't allowed to do that. And I'm thinking that and I'm not even really religious anymore. So imagine what the conservative Muslims are thinking when they see that. They're thinking like, how fucking dare you? You're making a mockery of our religion. And there are a lot of people who feel that way. Trust me, you know, this is, this is where I live. This is the community I grew up in. So I know that it infuriates these conservative Muslims whenever they see and hear these, left, these leftist, I don't know what you want to call them, when they appropriate Islam like that, when they appropriate it and turn it into a sort of a countercultural anti-establishment, you know, article of, of clothing almost, that pisses off these conservative Muslims and they are going to go after those very leftists at some point. So I think that's something to consider. I'm not saying it's hopeful. It, if anything, it's hopeless. It's a source of more conflict. But it's one of the developments we're going to see increasingly in the next few decades. So I don't think that this is going to be able to sustain itself indefinitely. I don't think that Islam will just be the new um, counterculture, although it is now. It is now. Let's see what happens. Maybe it'll leave you up for 10 more years. I don't know. But um, it, we've got an interesting time ahead, Lalo. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, it's a very interesting time ahead of that where I see liberals basically praising the the most sexist, oppressive... <laughs> <laughs> ideology conceived at least one of them ever conceived in in the world uh it's a great time to be alive <laughs> um yeah. and i hope that liberals realize and i i'm told this because i'm not an ex-muslim i don't come from this background but i i agree with the people from this background the ex-muslims who who have spoken to me that they these people need to realize that you can support people from this part of the world People who, for example, were on the list banned by Trump, you can support them without praising Islam. And they especially should care about those who are the least religious. Those are the people they have most in common with. And they need that's what they need to realize. And they haven't realized it yet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we finish? No, I think that's good. I think that's a really, really good wrap up, actually. Yeah. Yeah, I'm so, and I'm sorry for talking so much. I, no, in my last no. um, in my last podcast, I've been really good about limiting what I say and letting the other person talk. <laughs> but I've been really passionate about these subjects lately. So I just, yeah, you need to get it no, out we, sometimes. Well, there's a lot of stuff here that I'm sure we could explore again later on, like stuff like um, you know, the appropriation of Islam or you know any of these things. These are their own topics and their own rights. So I'm sure we can we can find time in the future again to engage on the issue. And I maybe next time I'll invite on uh, other ex-Muslims. Yeah, mashallah, do it. 
Um, so yeah, no, please. You're invited on anytime again. Um, and mm. is there people, uh, is there anywhere people can find you and follow you? Yeah. So I, I, I'm a prolific, um, uh, <laughs> I hope not shit poster. I'm a prolific poster on, uh, on my personal Facebook page. So you can find that at, um, facebook.com slash democide, uh, as in D E M O side, like suicide, democide. And, um, I'm also on Twitter, but I don't use that so much. So just Facebook is good. Yeah. Reach out. Okay. Sounds, sounds good. Although I, everything is shit posting now. There's not, there's not, there's nothing that isn't a shit post right these days, but yeah. Too true. Yo, thank you again for, for being on, Will. Thanks so much, Lolo. It was an absolute pleasure. <laughs>